Amen. Church family, it's good to see you this morning. Hope that you've had a good start to the, the new year. I saw something the other day that said we are as far away from 1970 as 1970 was from 1917. So, some of us weren't alive in 1970, and so that's lost a little bit, but others of you will appreciate that. Now, church family, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, we're going to come back uh, to our eternity series, but after last week, I just was impressed this week by the Lord that we come back to Psalms again this week. We saw last week in Psalms, we, we essentially answered the question, how, how do I get a good night's sleep in troubled times? That was where we went last week, and, and it naturally brings up uh, other questions, and one of those that I think is paramount to what we experience as believers living in this world is this, how, how do I respond when it seems like God has abandoned me? It's a question we may, some of us, not be willing to ever voice. It seems uh, wrong to even, even say such. Nonetheless, the reality is we will live and go through experiences where it seems that God is distant, where it sounds like God is quiet, and it feels like God is either unaware or uninterested. How do we walk that path? Well, I invite you to turn with me back to the book of Psalms, and we're going to go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 you're not sure exactly where it is, just take out the Bible in front of you, plop it open in the middle, most likely you'll be in Psalms, Psalm 22, and we're going to pick up here in verse 1. This is a Psalm of David, and he writes and says this, "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from, the deliverance, from, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning, or, or why am I screaming and crying out, but but your deliverance is so far. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, oh, you who are the one enthroned who receives the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. Here, here's what David says, and interestingly, we don't know. There's not in the, in the uh, title script, there's nothing that tells us what event in David's life this is connected to. Nonetheless, David writes in his opening cry in this psalm, and this cry of lament is, my God, my God, you are my God. I know you, you know me, why, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me. He says, I, I groan. I, I literally, I, I scream with, with agony. I, I cry out by day all along, but, but there is no answer. I, I cry out, but by night there is no silence. No, there's no peace that comes upon me. There's nothing that quiets and answers my crying. Your deliverance seems far away. At the same time, I know that you are holy. You're righteous. You, you're unique. You're distinct. You're unlike anyone else in all creation, for you are the Creator. You're the one who's enthroned, you're sovereign. I know the stories of old, my God. I know the stories of how my ancestors faced hardship and trial and danger and 
They trusted you and, and you delivered them. I, I, I know the stories. They trusted in you and they weren't put to shame, but, but it seems like I, Lord, it seems like you're far. It says, but, but I'm a worm and not a man. They may have trusted, but, but I'm, I'm a worm. In comparison to a creature which is powerless, defenseless, which most consider gross and grimy, which is easily stepped upon and crushed, he says, but I'm a, a worm and not a man, a, a reproach of men, despised by the people, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, you commit yourself to the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let God rescue him, because God delights in him. He says, Lord, I know you're holy, and I know that our, my father's trusted and they were delivered, but, but I, it's like I'm not even a man. I'm just this worthless creature, and, and the people around me, they, they despise me. They can't stand me. They move their lips with their mouth, they wag their hand, and they taunt me. And their taunt is essentially, oh, if, if you know God, let God deliver you. You're, you're God. You're God. You know, he can, He'll give you what you want. He'll give you. Not in any way real, but, but in taunting. David, your God won't do anything. But he says, yet you, God, you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been God from my womb. All of a sudden he comes back to this focus of intense personal care. God, you are the one who, who fearfully and wonderfully knit me, who in, intentionally crafted me together there in my mother's womb. You are the one by whose grace and has given me the breath of life and, and brought me forth. You're the, the one who, who cared and protected me when I was this helpless babe who is fully dependent upon the nourishment from my mother. You, you have been my God from birth. Lord, there is, I know this personal care that you have for me, yet my experience is one of a worm, a man of reproach who's taunted by his enemies. He goes further and he says, be not far from me, God. He, he moves from lamenting to petition, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me like a, as a ravening lion and a, and a roaring lion. He says, God be near, there is danger lurking about me. My enemies have surrounded, they are like mighty and strong bulls who are who are encircling me, angry, ready to, to pierce me with their horns. They are like lions who have surrounded me, who are ravenous and ready, ready to obliterate me. He says, as for me, I am poured out like water. I've melted like a puddle. All my bones are out of joint. They are dislocated. I am in pain with no strength. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My courage is waning. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, like a dried piece of pottery. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Can't speak. It says, and you lay me in the dust of death, God, by, by seemingly not delivering. You, 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 are, you are handing me over to death. It says, the dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Or your Bible may say, the lions have, the lions have grabbed my hands and feet. 
so I can count all my bones. My body is so frail that I can count the bones on me. They look, they stare, meaning this, that in this the state of what he feels, where he's at, he is in this state publicly. Others are looking at him. They, they stare at me. They, they look at me. They see me melted as wax. They see the tongue cleaving to the jaws, my, my hands and feet pierced. They see and they divide my garments among them. They, my clothing, they cast it off with lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My, my one and only thing I have, my very life from the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's a hard psalm to read through because this psalm presents a reality that is not foreign from the rest of Scripture. The psalm is written from the experience of a man and, and what he is going through. We don't know exactly what David was going through when he wrote it, but you, you hear the agony of the cry, and at the heart of that agony is a feeling that as David walks through this suffering, as he walks through this pain and hardship, that it seems as if his God is nowhere near, that his God is disinterested in a way. And it brings us to an uncomfortable truth, church family. The reality is, if you have been saved by grace through faith, adopted with the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed and are now a child of God. The reality of living that relationship with God out in this world, because of the brokenness of this world, is one where you and I will experience pain, physically, spiritually, it's one where you and I will experience persecution, enemies who oppose, who taunt, who attack without cause. You and I li live in a world where we will experience grief, the shock and the sorrow, the numbness that comes with the loss of dreams, the loss of loved ones, the loss of life. And as we experience those things, there are times where it seems that God is just not close by. David echoes this. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1, he writes that, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of the, the suffering with which we were going through, church. He said, we, we, we suffered so deeply that we came to a point where we despaired of life itself. Paul describes moments of being at the absolute end where it seemed like there is no hope. Even our Savior in the garden and being in agony with much fervency, he prayed, Father, if it be, if it please you, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Ironically, where have we heard these words elsewhere in Scripture? One other time, from the mouth of our Lord on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is the reality, church family. You and I will experience, as a result of many different reasons, you and I will experience times and moments in life where we are hurting and in pain, and it seems to us that we have been abandoned. And this psalm shows us how to walk with God through that. 
The psalm shows us how to walk with God. Already we've seen right off the bat that how do we respond to that? One, we cry out to him. We cry out to him though it may be hard. Do you realize, David writes and he says, Lord, I have been crying out day by day, moment by moment, I have been crying out. I have not heard an answer. And do you notice he is still crying out? It means he was having to make, undoubtedly, emotionally, a hard choice. He could easily have gone, God, you seem distant. I'm, what, what's, what's the good? I'm just, you just don't care. I'm just, he, no, he's been crying out. He describes his crying out as groaning, as screaming, as yelling. It, it is to a point of deep pain, and he continues to cry out. Church family, we must cry out, though it may be hard. We cry out in a real relationship. Did you catch? My God, my God. Not God, God, my God. We cry out in a real relationship. Listen, we need to be clear. You cannot walk uh, and experience the, 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 the comfort and personal walk with God, you can't cry out, my God, my God, and, and walk through this if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. That's the first prerequisite. Is you've got to be in a personal relationship with Jesus, which the good news, you can be in that today by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Admitting you're a sinner, recognizing Jesus has done what you cannot do and He desires to save you, you submit your life to Him, you know Him as Savior, so you can follow Him as Lord. We've got to know Him, but, 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 but for those of us who do know Him, who've been saved by grace, notice that the deepest pain David experiences, the agony is not all the language of being surrounded by bulls and lions and, and, and body wasting away, the real agony is in his relationship with the Lord, my God, my God. We cry out on the basis of a personal relationship. We cry out in a real relationship. We cry out in real faith. And here's what I mean by this. David is not crying out to God, wishfully thinking. I, just, I guess this is just my last resort. I'll, I'll try it again. He's, he's not crying out in, in complaint in terms of, Lord, I, I'm going to accuse you of of this and that. The fact that he is crying out is a sign that somewhere deep down, even though he is confused, he is hurting, he is in pain, he doesn't understand, he knows that God is God. And it is on the basis of his faith and trust in God that he finds the courage to come to God honestly and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why are you not answering me? We cry out, church family, in real faith. And we need to understand that today, that you can walk with God in real, deep, and strong faith. And you can feel like He is distant, and you can be honest and seek Him and cry out from a position of faith and not from a position of doubt or complaint. We have got to see, sometimes we go, man, if I, if I have some doubts creeping in, if I'm struggling, if it seems like, then I just must not trust. No, trust. Out of your trust, go bring it to God. Because he cries out in a real relationship. He cries out in real faith, and, and it drives him to cry out honestly. There's no mincing of words. There's no nuance. There's no trying to say. David is just blunt with the Lord. He simply, he, he pours out his heart, my God, my God. I'm crying out. 
You're not answering. It feels like I'm forsaking. David knows the truth of God's holy character. He knows the truth that God reigns sovereignly. He knows. He remembers these things. Yet he's honest that his present experience is that of a worm, seemingly worthless, powerless, defenseless, valueless, insulted, despised, taunted by men. You see, if we cry out in faith, church family, it doesn't mean that there won't be an experience of confusion. That was the interesting interplay. I've read this passage many times and hadn't noticed it before, but when you read it all the way through like we did, you realize David cries out, my God, my God, here's my lament. Where are you? What's going on? Yet, God, I know this about you, and that's what's making me confused. It's what I know about you and what I seem to experience. It's not, it doesn't seem to match up in this moment, and he's honest about it. And church family, we need to learn as we cry out to be honest about the confusion that we experience. Not because God's character is in question, we'll look at that in a second, but because we live in a world where as we experience hardship, there are a variety of reasons He may seem distant. We need to be honest about that confusion with Him. We need to be honest about the pain we experience with Him. The loneliness of suffering, you notice in all these verses, we'll see it change in a moment. In all these verses, there's a repetitive use of I, I, I. The reality is many of us as we suffer with hardship and pain and loss, it is a lonely place to be. Made all the more lonely where it seems that we can't feel His presence. David's honest about that. David's honest about the distance and silence of God. God, it seems you are far away. Be near to me. Answer me, it seems you are silent. David's honest about the, the, the threat that surrounds him. Despised, mocked, taunted, hemmed in, open mouths to devour, strength drained, bones dislocated, on and on and on. Church family, we must understand that as we face these moments, if we're going to follow the pattern we see David lay out here, we cry out. We cry out in a real relationship. We cry out out of faith. We cry out in honesty. We don't just cry out in honesty about the confusion and pain. We also cry out honestly in our petitions. Do you see what he cries? He says, Lord, be near. Be near. I need need to know and experience and sense your presence. Lord, deliver. I need to see your your action, your hands moving in in my life. Lord, answer. I, I need to hear. I need to know what steps to take. He is honest in his petition. And church family, we have to understand the need to cry out personally, faithfully, honestly, and desperately. David here, you don't find a man crying out when you read through those verses. You don't find one crying out, well, I guess I'll try God. This is my last resort. Now listen, that may be how God leads someone to break someone so down that they come to God as their last resort. I'm not Addressing that, what I'm saying is, as a child of God who knows the character of the Lord, this is not David's tried everything else. But see, here is the reality. It is easy for all of us in the midst of our pain and hardship, especially when the Lord feels distant, to go cry out and gravitate to whatever we can find in this world that can bring some momentary relief. And when we do that, we can make crying out to the Lord in this level of honesty a seeming afterthought. When the reality is, church family, as we we experience these things, we must cry out 
desperately. Lord, I need you to show up because there is no other hope if you don't show up. We cry out. You see, more than just we cry out, you see, we trust. We trust, though, there, though we struggle. We trust, though we are besieged by doubts, though we are plagued by worries, though we experience confusion, we choose trust. We choose to trust, to walk by faith confidently in, in who God says He is, though presently it doesn't seem that way. And, and there's much this passage tells us about who we trust God to be. We trust God to be holy. Oh, yet you are holy. You know, holiness, we, we, we think of holiness, we tend to think of one side of it, which is the moral purity, that God is without sin, that God is uh, without defect, that God is without evil or wickedness. But at its base, holiness on a broad sense means unique, separate, set apart. God is not just holy, He's holy, holy, holy. He is unique, distinct. He is not like us. He is not a cosmic vending machine that it's easy for us to imagine Him to be where we just, God, we put in our couple nickels, we punched our button, why didn't you give us the soda of our choice? He's not the cosmic grandfather that sometimes culture images Him to be where He just delights to give His sweet little grandchildren sweet little treats and toys. God is God. He is holy. And in His holiness, He is at work in the life of His children not to make us happy and, and promise us health, wealth, and prosperity, but to conform us into the image of Jesus, who was called a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, which is why Paul would write Timothy and say, anyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. He's not like us. He's working out His holiness in and through us, which means He allows and even causes us to be tested by hardship. And when it comes to the matter of our faith being tested and tried and refined like gold, remember, the Lord does that because He desires at His return to reward us for faith refined. Not only that, but it would behoove all of us to remember. I, I remember when I was uh, young uh, listening to one of our uh, youth volunteers share a story about he was working at a summer camp and he had this young nine-year-old boy who just was really downtrodden one night, and he sat down with this young boy, and, 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 was, and, and this young boy was pouring out his heart, and, but then he made this statement, this young boy, he said, you know, I figure all these things are tests, and a teacher doesn't talk when his students take their tests. And then the little boy got a smile on his face and went to bed, and it wrecked that college student who stayed up the rest of the night processing what came out of the mouth of a babe. He's not like us. He is holy. It also means He is not like man's gods. This is great news. He is holy. He is not petty. God does not delight in the suffering of His children. God does not sit up there like the child with the, the, the city of ants in the glass pane and go, man, they really don't like it when you shake it all up. There's no pettiness or twistedness with God when it comes to the suffering of His children. There is always a higher purpose and an eternal reward, even though we may not see that purpose or reward this side of heaven. 
No, He is holy. He is sovereign. says, you who are enthroned, who receives the praises of your people. Later on, it will say the kingdom, of, the kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over nations. Listen, church family, His sovereignty means there is no part of creation and our lives where He is not thoroughly in charge which means nothing can touch our lives that He does not either allow and pass through His sovereign hand, or if it's a matter of some refining trial that He may cause by His refining hand. Now, that's a hard truth. I I don't by any means mean to say that with a platitude. That's a hard truth. It's a hard truth. David writes and says in in his, in in verse 15, he says, God, you lay me in the dust of death. There is a hard truth that God who is sovereign will allow us to suffer. And He's honest about this all through Scripture. We share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus said, a disciple is not greater than his master or his teacher. A slave is master. It's enough to be like. Well, guess what that means? If Jesus, if this is the life that Jesus lived where He experienced hardship and pain and sorrow and suffering and also joy and love and peace then don't think that those of us who've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ somehow get a different deal than what Jesus lived as an example for us. He's honest all throughout Scripture, but but we can understand, and He says, take up your cross if you want to follow Me. The reality is we experience pain and sorrow and grief and loss. We experience that because we live in a world that is lost and broken. We will not experience it once we are reunited in God's presence with Him. We will not experience, as we come back to our eternity series in the weeks to come, we will not experience any of it in eternity. This psalm will phase phase out of its relevancy in eternity. We won't cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we feel that and experience that at times now because we live in a world that is broken. And even us, the strongest among us, even us, we possess weakness. But we can know and trust He is sovereign. He is trustworthy. It says, in you they trusted and you delivered Him, delivered them. Listen, God is exactly who He says He is, even when the darkness seems to hide His face. God is who He says He is, and there will come a day where we will see Him, and we will realize, Lord, even in my lowest moment where I wondered what you were doing and where you were, you are still exactly who you say you are. Gracious, faithful, abounding in loving kindness, eyes scouring the earth to and fro to greatly aid the heart that is truly yours. You are who you say you are, and you do what you say you will do. That's why he says later on, you have not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He is trustworthy. He's personal. David writes, you are he who brought me forth from the womb. Church family, if God is the one whose eye is on the sparrow... How much more his eye upon the man or woman made fearfully woven by his very hands in their mother's womb. The very man or woman in God's image that Jesus died on the cross to seek to save. God is personal. We can trust his personal care. We can trust that he is satisfying. Later on it will say the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. There is only one who will ever be able to satisfy the pain and hardship, the numbing grief and agony that we experience in this world, 
and he is Jesus. But oh, how tempting it is to find in other places, to think that something else will satisfy this pain of loneliness. It would be fixed if I just could get marriage. This, this, this pain in our marriage would just be fixed if we could have children. Oh, this, this pain of, of, of living in a hard economy would just be fixed if, if there was a higher raise or a better job. If We can go on and on and on. And there's nothing wrong with marriage. There's nothing wrong with having kids. And there's nothing wrong with a job and a raise. But there is something wrong if we believe that that is the satisfaction to our pain. He alone satisfies. All of these are ways that we see David trusting. David says, you are holy, you are trustworthy, you are sovereign, you are satisfying, you are personal, and you are loving. And you may say for a second, wait a minute, Pastor, we just, we read that same with you. We didn't see the word love in there. Oh, but it's all over this passage. See, this is an interesting psalm. We don't know what inspired David to write it. There's, there's a lot of questions. Did, did David write just a poem? But this seems too specific to just be some poem and mere thought about suffering. Did David write a liturgy? This was a song to be used in corporate worship. It could, but it's an interesting song since most of it is, I suffered this and I am experiencing this. It seems that David experienced something real, but there's another option on the table. David really did experience something that moved him to write this, but as only the Holy Spirit who authors his word can do. What David experienced was like this. What Jesus experienced was this. Did you notice that as we read through? When you read through, starting in verse 12 or verse 11, the language is that of execution. Bulls surround me. They open their mouths as ravening lions to devour me. I'm poured out like water. My bones are dislocated. My heart is like wax. It's melted. My strength is dried up like pot shard. My, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. My mouth is so dry I can't speak. And God, you're the one laying me in the dust of death. Evil has encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones. They are dividing my lots. Church family, every one of those things is fulfilled in the death of Christ. It is Christ whose hands and feet were pierced. It is Christ who, whose clothes were cast by lots by those who execute on him as Christ. Was it not those who put him on the cross who just like earlier in the psalm said, if you're really God's Messiah, let him save you, taunting him with the very word of God. Jesus, did he not cry out for a drink because he is thirsty? Was he not laid in the dust of death? Isaiah 53 speaks of his, his sacrificial death and it says it pleased God to crush him. Because Jesus' death on the cross wasn't simply an execution of someone that the Jews hated and the Romans wanted to placate their hatred. The death of Jesus on the cross was a sacrificial offering to drink up the full wrath of God in hell for all of our sin. That any one of us who would trust Jesus Christ for His righteousness, that we might be made right with God. You see, love is all over this passage because this passage is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom for God so loved 
the world gave his one and only son. In this is love, not that we cried out, but that he loved us and sent his son, his one and only unique, one of a kind, fully God, fully man, the only one who could pay the price, sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice to make man right with God. Oh my goodness, you mean that even when I experience suffering like this, and it feels like God is distant, it sounds like God is silent, it seems like God is disinterested or just unaware. You mean to tell me that I can cry out inside of my relationship with God and and cry out out of faith, trusting Him? I can cry out being honest with what I am experiencing, yes, and and I I can cry out in desperate faith because regardless of my experience, He is holy. He is sovereign and in control. He is trustworthy, and if I trust Him even when it seems He's not near, I will never be put to shame. The things of this world which seem real near, they will put me to shame, but not him. He's trustworthy. He is exactly who he says he is. You mean to tell me that as I walk through this, I can come back and and I can rest, that he is personal, that he really does see and care about my affliction? Oh, yes, brother and sister. It says in Psalm 56 that he keeps track of our tears in a bottle. The context is that bottle is something he keeps near to his heart. He is fully aware of every last sorrow, which is why when the new heaven and new earth come, one of the first final acts is to take his nail-scarred hand and wipe those tears away. He is personal in His care. He is loving, and you can know in the midst of greatest agony that God really does love you because it is objective, communicated on a cross that no one will deny took place 2,000 years ago. His love is objective, not subjective on what my feelings may or may not be. Here's the irony. The irony of human existence, church family, is that we as humans are blind to our greatest danger, sin. And sin is the one thing that can actually separate us and cast us off forsaken from God. We may cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But for those of us in Christ, we can never be forsaken because Christ took our spot of forsakenness on the cross. The irony that that which could actually separate us, does separate us. In that blindness, we didn't cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God so loved us that he sent his one and only son to orchestrate our redemption, that we might be adopted as son or daughters through the shed blood of Jesus, that he would be with us always, never to leave or forsake us, even in the deepest pit of despair. See, it says this. It'll be up on the screen with verse 22 or 21. It says, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild. And then there's, it's, it's a hard construction in Hebrew to translate into English. But then there's like this, this pause where all of a sudden David goes, you answered me. In my deepest, darkest pit, when I least expected it, when it seemed like nothing could be, you answered me. You answered me. You answered me. 
And you need to understand, church family, we can trust God that he answers. His answer may not be what we expect or want. Job struggled deeply with his suffering, but God answered him. It wasn't what he expected, but it was good. Peter asked Jesus a question, and Jesus answered him. It wasn't what Peter wanted. Jesus answered him and said, you'll go to a death you don't desire. Sometimes the answer we get from God may not be what we expect or even what we want, but he does answer. Sometimes the answers we get from God may not be when we expect or want. David already mentioned our fathers cried out and knew they trusted. We'll realize he's referencing the Exodus where the people of Israel cried out for at least 80 years, very easily longer, before God sent Moses to use as his tool to deliver them. God's answer may not come when we expect. There's reasons for that. It could be that God is refining me and God's not going to allow me to skip the trial. And so I'm going to have to learn to cry out really faithfully and honestly, and I'm going to have to learn to anchor down and trust who His Word says He is. It could be that what I'm crying out, wanting God to take away some pain, some grief, some sorrow, God's not removing it because to, to remove it would mean I miss something deeper that's really going on that He's trying to actually bring healing to. There's various reasons God's timing when He answers, but make no mistake, He answers. We may miss His answer. We may be too distracted. We may be wrapped up in idolatry, busyness. Are we posturing ourselves in a place to hear? It may be that His answer to whatever pain it is, it may be that His answer is heaven. Someone who's sick Lord, heal. Did the Lord not answer them? No. But the Lord's answer may be to bring them home. Ultimately, the Lord's answer is Jesus. You answered me. The reason we can have any comfort or hope whatsoever in the midst of these situations is only because of what we have in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a third part to how we respond praise. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that next week. It's interesting as I prepared, as the Lord stirred my heart and I prepared for this Sunday. Fourteen years ago this May, I preached my first sermon in church on this pulpit. This passage, Psalm 22, 1 through 5. I was graduating high school senior that night, Sunday night church, as I preached. Right over here, all four of my grandparents. We went home that night, had a sweet little graduation celebration. And I had no clue as I stood in that pulpit and preached the very same passage we've walked through today. That over the course of the next six months, I would move off to college. That's exciting. But my parents would move, and I would lose what was really home for me. And that was far harder than I ever imagined. That I would see one of my friends growing up's father killed tragically in a car accident. 
that by the time six months later rolled around, I would get a phone call to come out in the dorm where my mother proceeded to tell me that my sweet Mimi, who six months prior sat right over there in the pew as I preached this passage, was murdered by a hitman who went to the wrong house. I didn't know that by the time I was halfway through college, I would have been to 15 funerals for family, fa uh, family of friends. I, I still think at this point in my life, young as I may be, I have been to more funerals for loved ones than weddings. The things I hoped to accomplish and come out of college with, they didn't happen. I didn't meet my soulmate in college. I came out single as single could be. God would take me other places than where I thought he would take me after college. And there were days and nights of going, God, where are you? What are you doing? There were days and nights of pain that is so deep, I cannot find the right words to, to add to it. David puts it well, groaning. And here's what I can tell you today, church family. I had days of highs and a lot of lows. I had days where things were clear and days with a lot of questions and confusion. I still have some questions. And what I can affirm before all of us in the gathered assembly of God's people is though there were times he felt distant and sounded silent and seemed disinterested, Never was there a moment where his eyes were not upon me, where his hands were not faithfully protecting, providing, leading, and in fact carrying me when I couldn't carry myself. And always oh, serve a faithful God who can hear the cries of his people. Who struggle with the hardship of this world but a God who has clearly and emphatically said, I will never leave or forsake you. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you're worthy, you're here, you're moving. Would you be worshiped in how we respond, not just in this moment of invitation, but Lord, as we go out, as we live in a world that will bring us to our knees, would we be a people who out of faith will cry out to you in honesty and desperation, and Lord, who in the midst, though it may be hard and confusing to us, who will cling and trust you for you are exactly who you say you are. Lord, we look to you, and it's in your name I pray.